Father, it's good to be with you. Uh, please turn to Galatians. Uh, we're on Pew Bible, pages 973 not to 975, around there. We're actually going to start reading in chapter 3. And what we're doing today is we're beginning a new series uh, on the fruit of the Spirit. That, that's chapter 5, uh, 22 and 23. Um, there are nine of those fruit, and so uh, this is the first one, and the first fruit is love, so I'm doing the fruit of the Spirit is love. And you'll hear the other pastors preach on this various uh, fruit throughout the summer. Uh, but today, not only do we need to talk about the first fruit uh, and of love, but we need to really understand what's happening uh, in, in that verse. And the, and the only way you can do that is by understanding the context and the rest of chapter 5 and how it fits into the book as a whole, right? So um, that's what we'll be doing. That's why we're reading kind of back into the book a little bit. And one thing to clarify, too, some of you, if you've heard any teaching or preaching on Galatians, especially here, I think Sean did a series on this uh, a few years ago, right when he first came here, you'll know that the main problem Paul is addressing in the Galatian congregation is a problem with justification, a misunderstanding or an error in their, in their thinking about it. Uh, so they had uh, believed in Jesus, they were Christians, but now there was a group of people coming in teaching that they really needed something more than Jesus to be fully justified, right? To be fully accepted by God, to be really forgiven of all their sins. And so these, these folks were Jewish Christians who were saying, yeah, you need to keep certain parts of the Old Testament law to be able to be a Christian, right? To be a, to be a believer, to, to have Jesus in, in your life and to be a part of the church. And so Paul diagnoses that as this terrible, uh, you know, d departure from the gospel, uh, which is all about, he emphasizes throughout this whole book, Christ and what he did for us, right? So the, the gospel is that Jesus does what we can't do. He keeps the law right. He suffers the law's curse for us, Paul says in Galatians 3. And we receive that, his gift of new life and justification, uh, which is being declared righteous, simply by faith in him. We just look to him and trust and ask him for that. We receive it by faith alone. And so that's Paul's message, correcting the justification problem. But here's the thing. There was also another problem in Galatia, um, and it was a sanctification problem. The, these folks had the same kind of misunderstanding and confusion about how sanctification works. Sanctification is how God makes us more uh, actually holy and obedient in this life, right? And so there was an, a, another problem there too, and that's the main issue we're talking about today, okay, is this process of sanctification, which is God's work in us by the Holy Spirit to make us more like Jesus in our actual life and behavior, right? So we're going to start reading in chapter 3, uh, verse 2. Paul says this, Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish after uh, having begun with the Spirit? Are you now being perfected or completed? And that's a sanctification word. Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law, meaning by your works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Now skip over to chapter 5, turn the page if you need to. Verse 5 and 6, and this is Paul's stance as a believer, right? His stance towards uh, his life, his stance towards uh, his, his sanctification. 
He says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now skip down to verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And skip to verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want to do. And now down in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord God, you have inspired these words by your Spirit through your servant Paul long ago and you've preserved them for us and and you've brought us each one specifically here today to hear them but Lord um, some things that we've read are hard to understand and so we ask that you would help us Uh, Lord we cannot understand your word apart from your ministry to us through your Holy Spirit so shine your light on our minds and hearts open us up to know you to meet you here today and have you work in us to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So part of my history that I don't talk a lot about is I went through a tennis phase. Uh, In my early teens, I played uh, every day, if I could, for several years. I even played tournaments in the Mississippi tournament thing. It was the only sport I ever felt like I had a a little bit of natural ability at. Not a ton, but some. And I got decent. I I felt like I got pretty good. You know, I had some other friends that were, one friend especially was like number one in his, in his class, in his age class, you know, and I could keep up with him sort of when we're hitting and, um, but so I was so zealous for tennis. I loved it. And so I decided to start playing uh, tournaments in my age group and I started losing. Let me rephrase that. I never won, okay? Like, I, I never had a winning streak to lose or break. Uh, just kind of, I pretty much lost every match I ever played. Almost, I maybe won like two. And what was so frustrating is, it wasn't just when I played like the number one seed, you know, and he was just a great, he was great, you know, or a lot better than me. I would lose to people that weren't, that I knew weren't as good as me, and they weren't, you know? But I would still lose. It, like, it didn't matter who I was playing. I had a knack for not winning. And I became so frustrated with this after working so hard at it, giving so much of myself to it, that I basically ended up quitting. You know, the final, whatever that last uh, loss was, it was just it for me. Done. I walked away from tennis. Now, why do I say that? Because some of us, you may have the same experience uh, or feel like you have a similar experience with the Christian life. Uh, you feel like there are certain parts that you're pretty good at, maybe uh, learning, you know, reading, uh, reading theology, reading the Bible, maybe certain practices that you do that you're comfortable with, coming to church, praying, 
But when it comes to uh, where it really counts, you know, uh, you tend to see yourself, you just feel like you're losing all the time. Uh, you get defeated by sin, by certain sins, over and over again. It seems it doesn't matter what you do, you know, you still feel like you lose regularly. And you end up so frustrated with this. And with your, this, the record, maybe you look back on and see that the track record is not great, right? In certain areas, you just feel like quitting altogether, you know, or just giving up. So what, what I needed when I was a player, uh, one of the things I needed, uh, was a coach. I didn't have a coach. And looking back, of course, it would have been great to have a coach. Someone to help you, to guide me, to like show me what I'm doing wrong, you know, like walk me through the paces and correct my swings and all that kind of stuff. And we Christians need something kind of similar, uh, but more than a coach. I mean, we need someone who won't just teach us, instruct us, or even show us what to do and how to live this Christian life. We need someone to empower us to do it. We need someone to enable us to act differently, right? And friends, we have that person. He's the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. Uh, he is the one who empowers us to live this Christian life and to uh, evidence the fruit of the Spirit. And so what we're going to do today is look at three things. Why do we need the Holy Spirit if we're Christians trying to live this Christian life? Why do we need him? How do we get him? And what he does in us? What's the main thing he does in us? So first, why do we need the Holy Spirit for this process of sanctification for living the Christian life, for striving to obey and follow God? Well, it's because of the flesh. You notice that word we read a few times. It's the word Paul uses in Galatians and Romans for uh, the remaining sinful nature that still clings to us in some way as Christians. Now, the flesh is, doesn't just mean, it doesn't mean body, okay? Um, it's not, nor is it like, sorry, nor is it like a force, um, it's not a part of you, right? Not some one part versus another part. It's this resistance to God that we still struggle with as Christians, right? Um, it's a distaste for him. It's uh, preferring to not engage him, right? Um, it's pride. It's unbelief. It's self-reliance. That's what the flesh is. And the flesh is still active in believers, Right? Uh, verse 16 in chapter 5, we read, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And he's, he's just writing this to Christians, right? To people who are, are in Christ, who have the Holy Spirit. And then he still says, he assumes, that their flesh is still active. It's still generating desires that would lead them to sin, right? So it's still active in us. And the picture Paul paints is, especially in Romans 6, if you want to read more about this, look there, is that the Holy Spirit, because of what Christ has done, the Holy, Spirit, um, um, the Holy Spirit is in us, and he's renewed us, he's remade us or regenerated us. We're new creatures now in Christ, and he has dethroned sin's rule over us. So Romans 6 talks about, because of Christ, um, our sinful nature of the flesh has, has died, in a sense. It's been crucified with Christ, right? Paul says that in Galatians 2. Um, so it's dethroned, but it's still bothering us. It still pesters us, right? Uh, it's dead, but it still attacks somehow. So it's like a zombie. Okay, the flesh is like a zombie. It's dead, 
but it can still eat you up. Okay, so the flesh is still active in us, okay? That's the first idea. That's why we need the spirit. But the second reason is because the flesh really can and does trip us up, right? It's powerful enough, its dynamics are powerful enough, but it can lead us to sin, it's, and, and often does, right? It's often successful in these things. Um, it says, again, verse 17 in chapter 5, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. That means that they're opposed. There's a warfare going on between the desires of the spirit, I'm sorry, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. They're opposed to each other, it says, so that to keep you from doing what you want to do, right? So as Christians, we want to obey God. We want to serve God. We want to not sin in these ways. And that's from the spirit. We have a desire, right, to do those things and to avoid these things. But yet, what does he say? We still end up, because of the flesh's power and influence over us, doing the things we don't want to do, we still end up sinning. So that's why we need the spirit. Uh, because the flesh is still present and powerful in our lives. Despite its being dethroned and, and dead, it can still harm us. Think about all the great people of the Bible. You know what I mean? Like the big name people. And think about how every single one of them, like, blew it big time. Like, I mean, has some pretty significant sins or flaws in their life. Adam, of course, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, and Paul right? So, I mean, by picking these people as the, pe the ones God's going to work through in redemptive history, right, and, and highlighting them, and, and they're the, the great ones, right, of the faith, and yet they all sin so much and still struggle so much. Now, why would God do that? Because he doesn't want us to underestimate the presence and power of the flesh and its potential in our lives, okay? If we underestimate uh, the way in which we still uh, struggle with the flesh and with sin, we'll be tempted to think we can handle it on our own, apart from the Holy Spirit. And that's the real problem. I mean, Paul's, this is the root of the sanctification problem that these folks have. It's what he, it's what he talks about there in chapter 3 that we read, um, where he says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then that um, are you, uh, having begun with the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? They started with the Spirit. They had received the Spirit when they believed the gospel. But instead of relying on the Spirit as the power source, right, uh, for, the, for living the Christian life and obeying God, they shifted their trust away from the Spirit's empowering presence to their own. You see what I mean? He says in verse 3, are you trying now to be perfected by the flesh? And that just means by you by this solo, autonomous, self-reliant part of ourselves that uh, is still present in us to some degree. Well, see, when we, when we start to think that way, we start to get into trying to be sanctified or, or live a Christian life by the flesh, just by our own effort and strength and willpower, we start to depend on other things in the Holy Spirit, several things. Uh, we can start to depend on your own discipline, right? Your own, your own willpower to sanctify you, right? We can start, we say things like, well, um, I'll eventually grow out of this. We, we, we start to believe that there's such a thing as sanctification by time, right? Or a lot of us when we were younger, uh, at least I did and men I think do, uh, think that marriage is gonna change you. You know, you'll, you'll get married, you'll walk down the aisle and you'll be this great person. 
Um, you won't lust anymore. You won't struggle with being selfish, whatever. Others think if I just quarantine myself away from all the bad people and places and things, then I'll become more holy. Then I could be successful in this fight, kind of on my own. And, of course, if you've done any of those things for very long, you, you soon realize none of those are very effective. Why? This is it. Why does trying to sanctify yourself by the flesh, on your own, just depending on your own resources, why does that not work? Because you, it, it doesn't understand the source of the temptation, right, and the source of sin. See, it thinks, well, sin is out there in those people or those places, right? That's the quarantine model. And if I just avoid them, then I won't have any struggles with sin. It's totally ineffective. The early church father, uh, Jerome, he's famous for translating the, the Bible into Latin. He's famous for other stuff, too. He wrote a lot of books, uh, commentaries on the Bible. He was a leader in the early church. He was one of the, one of the monastics, right? And so he went into the desert, and in the early part of that movement, the people would go into the desert by themselves, right? They wouldn't go, like, to a monastery. They would literally go into the desert and live by themselves, like, in a cave for years. So he was one of those guys. And so he wanted to leave the culture he was in because it was so filled with temptations, and he'd fallen so many times. He thought, if I just could get away from this, then I can fully be devoted to God, and then I can grow and really be holy, right? And uh, so he went. There were no temptations in the desert. Uh, there was no parties, <laughs> Uh, no people, no people at, at all, right, to tempt him in any way, for him to get into conflict with. He was, he was a kind of a cantankerous guy, so he would often find himself in conflict and quarrels over all sorts of things. But this is what he said after he tried that for a while. <clears throat> he said, I went to live in the desert by myself to find God, and I found that I was surrounded by dancing girls. Now, what he meant was, in his attempt to get away from all the sources of the temptation and the people and places that were the occasion maybe of his temptations, he went into the desert and he couldn't escape the images that he had in his mind, right? He kept thinking about the dancing girls he'd seen or whatever, you know? And so what he realized is, see, he took the main problem with him into the desert. That's why it didn't work. He took his heart. He took himself, see? He took the main temptation and it was his heart, himself, right? So this is the point. The flesh, in as much as it still clings to us, is not something we can fix. It's not something we can fight successfully on our own, in and of ourselves. And willpower and time um, and all sorts of other activities we may throw ourselves into or living in a Christian kind of bubble will not affect the flesh. It won't change it. So who will? Who can who can, who can change us, really? Who can bring us to a, a, different, a different way of living? Who can produce this fruit in us that we want in our lives? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. That's his job, okay? The job of the Holy Spirit is to be the one who comes into our lives. He re renovates us. He changes us into new creatures. And he, he lives in us, literally. The Spirit dwells in God's people, right? He's there to empower and change and lead us to live differently. That's his job. Now, uh, so how do we receive the Holy Spirit? Well, it, we, we looked at that, right? It says there in uh, Galatians 3, uh, verse 2, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And as Paul teaches everywhere, if you're a Christian, if you've believed in Christ and you're one of his, 
then you have the Holy Spirit, right? It's not like you don't have him, or you might not have him. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. You receive him uh, when you believe the gospel. You receive him by, the, by hearing with faith, right? Hearing the gospel and responding with faith in Christ. So we receive him initially by faith, right? And so the, the Spirit is present in God's people, present in us, in all Christians. Remember in chapter 5, Paul's assuming that we have the Holy Spirit, right? He says, walk by the Spirit, and you won't, uh, you won't give in to these sinful desires. He says, if you were led by the Spirit, he refers to several times to the Spirit working in us, us having him. So his purpose, again, is to lead us to holiness, and that's through his power, right? He empowers us to believe, and that, that we're starting to get to what he does in us. Remember, it said we receive the Holy Spirit when we hear with faith, when we believe and trust in Christ. And there's, so, there's a dynamic that we continue to re, but, but receive the Spirit, not in the first way, but he continues to empower us as we believe the gospel, right? So in verse 3 uh, of chapter 3, back there, it says, Having begun with the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So shifting from reliance on the Spirit to the flesh, and then he says again in verse, in verse 5 of chapter 3, and he, this is present tense, listen to this. Does he who s- currently supplies the Holy Spirit to you and works miracles among you, right, uh, does amazing things uh, in, around you or in the church or does amazing things in your life, does God do those things through the Spirit because you've done certain works of the law, right, or by hearing with faith, see? And the point is, we receive the Spirit by faith. We continue to uh, open ourselves up to his presence and activity by faith, by trusting in Christ. That's the Spirit's job, too, to get us to turn in faith to Jesus again and again. And when we do that, we can say no to the flesh, right? Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. That's it. And living by the Spirit is having faith in Christ for all that we need. So that verse 6 of chapter 5 we read, he says, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Right? So by the Spirit, you have him, uh, trusting in him, trusting in Christ, we can pursue this life with God. He empowers us to do it. We can fight and resist the flesh. Okay, so last point, what does that look like? What is the main thing the Spirit does in us to lead us forward in the Christian life, in, towards greater growth or integrity or holiness? What is that? Well, it's love, right? The main means he uses is faith. He continues to nurture our faith in Jesus. But then what does faith produce? 5-6 says, faith works through love. That's how the Christian life is structured. It's how it's set up. The Spirit continues to empower us to believe and trust in Christ and in his enabling power, and we are thereby enabled to love. Remember Paul says in Galatians 2.20, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So did you see why faith produces love? Because faith grasps hold of God's love for us displayed in the cross where his only son died for our sins and was condemned for us and rose for us. 
And all of that was done out of love so God could get us for himself, so God could have his children back in his arms where he, he made us to be. And so when Paul says, well, I live by faith in this love, in this Christ who died for me and, ra and was raised for me. It, I mean, he doesn't say it specifically, but it's there, right? He loves Jesus because Jesus loved him in the cross and the gospel and what he did for him. So faith, kind of, uh, when the Spirit moves you in that way and you see the gospel again, you see God's grace and love for you, it's overwhelming, and you love him back, right? That's what he's after. That's why the first fruit of the Spirit is love, see? It's the first thing that pops out of the believer, you know? Um, it says in chapter 4, a beautiful passage, one of my favorites, and a, one of the most amazing ones in the Bible, I think. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Look at this. When the, in the fullness of time uh, had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem or set free those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, also an heir. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? He literally says there, the reason Jesus came and died is so God could make you his, ch his child. That's what he says. To redeem those who are under the law, which is a reference to uh, justification through the cross, so that, that's a purpose clause, so that we might receive the adoption of sons. Because God made us in the image of his son at the beginning to be his children, to be his sons and daughters, and to, and to have fellowship with him, and that to be the height of our life and the core and center of our life. And sin is a defection from that. It's seeking to live life apart from God, apart from fellowship, apart from intimacy, apart from worshiping him, adoring him as the, the one God that he is. You see? And so what the whole gospel is about in terms of what God's, God's aiming for, that he accomplishes through the cross and resurrection of Christ, is to make us his kids again. That's it. I mean, what does it say? Because you're sons through the cross now, and you're adopted, he sends the spirit, not just this objective accomplishment kind of outside of us, right, that Christ died for our sins so we could be forgiven, and then maybe just go on from there. No, he wants a relationship with us. Look, because you're sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. That's like crying, Daddy. That's this intimate cry of the belief from the believer's heart to God who is now his or her father in Jesus. So what does he want? What's the first thing? What's the main thing in the Christian life? Love. Love for God and love for others. Now, some will say there's a lot of misunderstanding and all sorts of stuff out there about love and what it is, and uh, that can get distracting. But I do think there's a common notion that a lot of us pick up from C.S. Lewis, I think, who I, who I think is great and I think is amazing, but I'm not, I'm not, I don't think he's right on this, where he really emphasizes love as an act of the will, right? So he says love is primarily just acting or doing. Uh, it's, just, it's just the action, the loving action, right? But the Bible doesn't you just can't say that and pay attention to Scripture, right? In the Bible, love is affectionate action, okay? It's not just will or just the act, say, of caring for someone or, or, or obeying God. It's both. Why do I say that? Because Matthew 22, where Jesus says the, that the greatest commandment of all is to love God, it's to love God with all your heart, right? It's not just to love God with all your strength, 
or even your mind, but love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, right? 1 Corinthians 13, what does he say? If I have, you know, if I have great faith or I have great works, I could even be a martyr, I could give my body to the flames, but I don't have love. Well, if love is only an action, an act of the will, it doesn't make sense. Because he says you can give your body, you could be a martyr for Jesus and not have love. So it's got to be more than just the act, right? Now, it, it includes the act. But what, something's got to be behind it. Love includes affection. It includes motivation. It includes delight in the one you love, right? Love is affectionate action. So it's so important that Paul can say what we've said uh, and seen in Galatians 5, 6. The only thing that counts is faith. How, how, how can he say that? How can he say that? There's a lot of other important things, Paul. I mean, why? That's irresponsible, we might want to say, you know? But he says the only thing that counts is faith working through love. Why? Because what he says down in verse 13 and 14. Because when you love God in response to the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, you fulfill the law, right? It, love is the, the basic form of obedience that then fulfills the rest of the law. So love is the first fruit of the Spirit, and all the other fruits of the Spirit, commentators and stuff say, are different forms of love in different circumstances, right? Um, so love is key. Love for God is key. Now, the other last thing here, what, is, what does God want to produce in us by the Spirit in sanctification? He wants to produce love for Him. That's right? the main thing. That's the first thing and last thing. It's, it's always the, the, the number one deal. But also love for others. So in Mark, uh, Mark's account of when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment of all in the Old Testament? And he says, the greatest commandment, one, singular, and then he says two things, right? So the single greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, strength, mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, why would he do that? Because you can't separate love for God and love for others. You can't love God, right? It says in 1 John 3 and 4, you can't love God and hate your neighbor. Because loving God, that process we talked about of receiving God's love, knowing his forgiveness, knowing you're justified, receiving adoption, and loving him back, right, moves you to love other people in the same way. That's why he talks a lot in chapter 5 and 6. I think what he's mainly talking about by love when he talks about it as a fruit is this love for others. Um, that's the dynamic that gets messed up when you just rely on the flesh, and there's a lot of evidence for that too. So he's talking, I think, emphasizing love for other people here. So here's the point. Uh, love is the front line, okay, of the Christian life. It's the front line. It's where, it's the most important thing to have or to do or to learn to do, right, by the Spirit. And it is also, it's where, really, it's where uh, the battle is fiercest, okay? Satan's number one aim is to get you to not love and sin against love. God's number one aim is to get you to love. And I say it that, that way, as it's the front line, because there's all sorts of other things we can get tangled up with thinking that they're the real front line. You know what I mean? In my life as a Christian. All sorts of other issues. Maybe it's church, uh, which is important. Or maybe it's leadership, or maybe it's ministry, or maybe it's your, uh, being good in your work. Or maybe it's some of the sexual sins that are fruits of the flesh, right? They're a problem. All these things he lists are a problem. 
But the first thing he lists that opposes them, where the front line really is, is love uh, and your heart. So you may be familiar with this, um, the Maginot Line, you heard of that? It was this amazing thing uh, that, that France built after War, World War I. They got really beat bad by the Germans, right? The Germans invaded France, and it was terrible. And so after that, France decided to build this, this battlement, this amazing fort that ran for like hundreds of miles, and it was going to be the greatest defensive fortress ever built. And it was going to run along the entire border with, with Germany. It's, like, it's, a long t- it's a long way. So it was made of, and this is from a little article about it, the thickest concrete ever that ever had been made. You know, its walls were thicker than anything else they could, do, they could possibly, they've ever found or done. It had the biggest guns available. It had living quarters for all the troops that had air conditioning. Um, it had an underground rail line that could supply all the points of it like continually. And there were giant storehouses built underground too. I mean, this is an unbelievable labor that went into this and cost and everything. But then here's the problem. Because they said, okay, this is the front line and we're going to we're gonna defend, we're going to throw all our eggs in this basket. We're going to defend this. And what happened in World War II? The Germans just went around it. They went north and went through Belgium and came, came down. And so the Maginot Line was useless. It didn't even get used. See, they, they misidentified the front line. And so they got, they got whipped again, you know? And we often do the same thing, right? All those other things, all the other ways that we need to obey God, they're important. But they're not unimportant at all. Paul takes them very seriously, and we should too. But the way the Christian life works is by faith in an ongoing way in Christ that then produces love as the Spirit works in us, right? Out of that, we then fulfill the law and tackle the other issues we have. Because if we don't do it in faith and with love, we're not really obeying him anyway. Even in those things where we may be appearing to obey him. So, this is the way of sanctification Paul's saying. He's setting it up, he's defending it against these misunderstandings. Um, and so you may wonder, well, why did, why did God set it up this way? Uh, why does it have to be sort of more complicated than just now you're saved, you're forgiven, and now just go obey? I mean, why do we have to say more than that as Christians to be faithful to Scripture? Well, this way glorifies Christ, right? I mean, what it says really is what he did. He didn't just purchase us forgiveness. He didn't just die an atoning death and be raised. He did those those things, right, for our justification. He also secured our sanctification because he perfected his own human nature. He fought sin. He defeated sin by the Holy Spirit's power. And so he perfected himself so that then now exalted in the heaven, in heaven with God's right hand, he can pour his Holy Spirit out on us and in us to perfect us, not in this life. But eventually, when we die, I got to be with him. See? So it's this, this way of receiving justification and the way of moving forward in the Christian life, they, go to, they fit together. See, they're, they operate by the same kind of similar principles. Now, but we tend to refuse this and struggle against it. And that's, the, that's the, that power of the flesh that still we struggle with. And so you may be here today and you've heard all this and you're like, okay, I've, whether you've heard it before or not, you still have that record, you know? You still 
are kind of aware of the track record and the ways you failed, and that still may be looming in your mind. I mean, all this may do is just explain some of the dynamics that you don't see in your life or something, you know? Or the ways, that just things you haven't done and therefore failed in the ways that you, that you struggled with. And the temptation is still to be frustrated and quit or give in or give up. And just kind of run away, you know? So when I was young, uh, we, my father lived in this little house in Bellhaven. Some of you know where that is in Jackson, on Fairview Avenue. And me and my little brother would go stay with him uh, all the time. And we weren't, we'd never had a dog. We were kind of cat people. So take that for what it's worth. Um, that may be part of my problem in life, maybe, um, is that I was not a dog person first. But so we wanted a dog. And so my dad got us a dog. And it was a, I've never heard of this before, a half lab, half cocker spaniel. I don't know. So it looked like a miniature lab. It, like its body was like a lab body, lab head, but its feet were really short. And it, let's just say it got overserved uh, in the food department, right? So this dog just it quickly got large. It got large. It just did. It was quite an overweight uh, animal. So, but we loved this dog to death. We loved, it had everything, and it was living the dream. Uh, obviously, enough food, or too much food. It slept all day, my dad was busy, but when we'd come over, just, we'd play with it for hours. I mean, it's just, this dog had it made, had everything it needed right there. And about a year after my dad got this dog, he got, she started running away. I mean, it's like, why would this dog try to run away? Well, she did. And this craziest thing is this. She would run from Bellhaven in Jackson all the way down like a few miles to this place called the Cherokee Drive-In, which was a bar that's been there forever. And she regularly ran off, not kidding, two or three times, a few miles to the same place, the Cherokee. And my dad would get a phone call after frantically looking for him, you know, the dog and not finding him in the neighborhood. From the, from the barn, they'd say, uh, is, are you you're Walter Jones? And you know, that kind of stuff. And, okay, we've got your dog here. And so time and again, my dad would get up in the middle of the night and go drive across town and pick up the dog and bring her back. And as many times as she kept running away, he kept doing it. You know, he wouldn't give up. I mean, he loved us too much to like, yeah, just, I'm, I'm tired of this. He kept chasing her, right? He kept going to get her. He didn't give up. And this is the point. God has not given up on you. He's not giving up on you. He keeps coming. He will not stop. Because he pursues you in love. And he sacrificed his son to have you. And to have you back in his arms where you belong, where you have it all, right? So you don't have to run away again. I don't have to. We can go home with him and live with him, right, by faith. And respond to him with love. So let's do that. And we're going to pray. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that the good news of your grace, of uh, just the God that you are, uh, as Father, Son, and Spirit, is, is matchless in its power, in its beauty, uh, to know that we're loved by the God of the universe uh, and loved so deeply uh, is 
the greatest gifts. So, Lord, I pray that you would train our minds and hearts on this truth, that you would move us, Lord, to serve you well. And when we fail to return to you and trust you again and continue to rely on all you are and have purchased for us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.